Uh, wow, I wish Larry was here. You just miss being with people you love, and Larry's one of them. So Mary and I are really glad to be here. My wife Mary back here, you've seen her hanging out with me. Uh, we've been in Lincoln, Nebraska 41 years, and uh, we don't know what we did to deserve such a sentence, <laughs> but uh, we've yet to be paroled. I'll be paroled at the end of this year. And we'll, <laughs> the state prison is in Lincoln, and I've served longer at the University of Nebraska than many of those guys have at the state pen. <laughs> and uh, our parole is coming, and we, we're turning the leadership of this ministry over to someone else, and we don't know what's next. But we do know that God has a plan for us. Uh, when we first got started, Psalm 16, verse 5 just hit, hit me. I was a senior in college. Uh, we had just recently been married in March of that year, and I was uh, trying to decide, God, what are you wanting us to do? And uh, I, I took a, a day of prayer, and Mary was working at the OU bookstore. We both graduated from OU, and she was working at the bookstore, and I, I spent a day in prayer and was reading the scriptures, and, and for whatever reason, I don't know why, I was memorizing Psalm 16. And I'd taken the day to memorize Psalm 16 and med meditate on it. And I got to verse 5. And it says, You, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Well, at that time, I was memorizing in the King James Version of the Bible. Good news for 17th century man. And... Uh, I was, I was memorizing that, and it says, Thou holdest my lot. And I was memorizing it. Thou, Lord, Thou holdest my lot. And it was like, it, it's like God said to me, Brett, don't worry about it. I hold your lot in life. Thou holdest my lot. And my, I find my, Mary and I find ourselves again. At the end of 41 years, in one ministry, praying to God, saying, God, thou holdest our lot. And uh, this came, I, I was meditating on this this morning. This verse came to me uh, as I was praying this morning. And I wrote in my journal, I'm not done. I'm not done. Thou holdest my lot. And uh, I went to a seminar this past summer, and Craig Rochelle, who's Life Church TV guy, and he's got great one-liners. That's why I liked listening to him. He said, if you're not dead, you're not done. And it's like, okay, let's see my dead. Okay, I'm not done, all right? And uh, so Mary and I are really looking forward to what's out there. We're graduating, too. We're graduating, we're feeling what you seniors are feeling. Oh my gosh, where's the money going to come from? Where are we going to live? Where are we going to? We think we know where we're going to live in Lincoln. Uh, but it's great to be here with you, and I feel like I'm with the world because we have our friends from Germany here. Where, where we haven't recognized you guys as a group. We all, everyone from Germany, please stand up. Everyone from Germany. Wow. You know, every one of you that I know I love, and I know I already love the ones I haven't really talked with from Germany. And then we have someone from Spain here. So Abraham, would you stand up? And Martha. Wow. I was in Spain in May, and I'll tell you, it's where you want to go. <laughs> Seville. We were in downtown Seville. I mean, they don't eat dinner till like 10 o'clock at night. Is that cool? Yeah. Downtown, I mean, it's so clean. It's beautiful. They have these amber lights on, and it's like you're on a Hollywood movie set. You know, you're looking for the cameras. Am I a movie star or what? Mm -hmm. And they sit down, they bring you this incredible food, and you eat and you have conversation till about midnight. And that's when things get going, you know, around midnight. And, oh, and what God has done in Spain, the, uh, 
the way God has touched the hearts of students in Spain is just amazing. We went to the beach and had a beach baptism in Spain last May. The big breakers coming off the Atlantic and people going down, four people identified with Jesus. And many of them, their families are like, no, you don't do this. But it's like, no, their lives had been touched. And then we have, I know Peter's from Hong Kong. Stand up, Peter's, Hong Kong. <laughs> Anybody else here from Hong Kong? Oh, stand up. Ah, I love Hong Kong. I was just telling Peter's what I miss about Hong Kong. And then we have some people here from China, don't we? Is there someone here from China? Okay, stand up. And where are you from in China? And where, where is that located in reference to? Uh, southwest. Southwest, okay, near Nanning or? Near Tibet. Well, man, that's wonderful. And where are you from? Oh, from Shanghai. From Shanghai. So, man, we have that. So thank you guys for being here. And, yeah. Isn't this great? And then I've met somebody from uh, Malaysia. Who's from Malaysia? Would you stand up? Two Malaysians. Three Malaysians. Yeah. I, I've never been to Malaysia, but we've, we've had Malaysian students live with us, and I've prayed for Malaysia and the people of Malaysia. We have 200 Malaysian students that come to the University of Nebraska, and I don't know, the, a few of them may know Jesus, but not very many, because most of them are from our Muslim backgrounds. Okay, do we have any Indonesian students here? Anyone from Indonesia? Did I hear that? Okay, where else, what other countries are we from? Canada. Where's Canada? Stand up. Yeah, Candace. Candace from Canada. Oh, man. I, I think of my time in uh, Winnipeg and in Quebec. I've never been to Edmonton, where you're from, or to Vancouver. But what God is doing among students in Canada, all over the country, God is touching the lives of college students in Canada. Any other nations represented here? So it's almost like you come here to Southern California and you, you touch the world. And uh, it's just really wonderful to be here. Mary and I totally love getting out of the snow belt, the snow zone. When we left Omaha, it was 17 degrees, there were six inches of snow on the ground. Neil said it might snow here tonight. The good thing about that is I'm not going to have to shovel. <laughs> so let it snow is my thing. So uh, I want us to read uh, this passage from Isaiah 58. I think it's going to be up on the screen. Let's stand up and read this thing together. Stand up on your feet and let's read, read this passage. Because I think in this passage uh, there's a whole lot of potential and promise here for our lives. Okay, are you ready? Let's read it out loud. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame, and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets with dwellings. Lord, I just pray that as we talk together today about uh, your purpose of wanting us to influence others and focus on our lives being a vessel of life to other people, that, God, you would help us to make the choice to be that person who will pour ourselves out for others. And thank you for the promise that this verse provides. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you notice, this is a conditional promise up here. It says, if then, if then. You see, God created a world that allows people free choice, but not the freedom to choose the consequences. Uh, we live in a world where we're allowed the free choice. You could climb up in one of these sequoia trees out here, and you could try to swing off one of those wires out there and hold on to it. That would be your choice. But if you let go, you cannot choose the consequence of that choice. It's already been determined. That we live in a world where God allows us free choice, but not to choose the consequences. And this Isaiah 58 that we read is about our choices and, our, and consequences of those choices. And it says, if you do away with treating people poorly and accusing them, and if you spend yourself or pour yourself out for hungry people, and if you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then something amazing is going to happen. And I really believe that this if-then choice consequence is absolutely true for a joyful, fulfilled life. And the reason that a lot of people are not experiencing it is that they have not chosen to be someone who believes in other people and pours themselves out for other people. When we moved to Lincoln 41 years ago, I did not know a soul. Our ministry did not start from scratch. It started from itch. Okay? So we moved there. We didn't know a soul. And I had been involved in OU, at OU, with some athletes. And when I was in Miami, uh, University of Miami, I had met some athletes, and then I went to Nebraska, who had just beat OU in the game of the century, and I was an OU football fan, and it's like that was the den of darkness over there, the athletic are, and Satan himself, Bob Devaney, was the head coach, and it's like Max said, you need to go over to the athletic department and see, maybe there'd be some contacts there. That's the last thing I wanted to do, but... I took a deep breath and went over, and I thought, well, I'm not going to talk to Bob Devaney. That's for sure. I, I cherish life, and I'm not going to talk with him. So I went, and I said, can I talk to the freshman football coach? I thought, you start at the bottom. And the, I talked to the freshman coach, and he said, well, you need to meet this. Have you met, talked to Tom Osborne? And I said, no, I haven't. Well, you need to talk to him. So I went up to to meet Tom, and uh, I told him my history, OU, Miami, helped start FCA, got stuff started with athletes, and I said, I, I have plenty of time on my hands. I'm just new here. I don't know a soul, and so I'd love to help, and he said, well, boy, your timing is perfect. I'm going to be head coach next year, and I'm thinking, really? I had no idea. Don't care, and... Uh, <laughs> And so he said, if I, I'll give you the names of the freshman players, and then you could just go visit them and see if they'd want to be in an FCA huddle. And FCA stands for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, for those of you who don't know. And so um, I, I have a 41-year relationship with Tom Osborne, and we are not close friends. I don't see him regularly anymore. Uh, I did when he was head coach. I traveled some with the football team. I did the chapel. But then he went to Washington. He was a congressman. He came back to Nebraska as athletic director. And we don't have a close relationship, but he has been a mentor to me. Uh, he's 10 years older than me. He's been a mentor for these 41 years in some ways. He started an organization called Teammates, which is an organization that helps underprivileged at-risk kids have mentors that help build them up. And he took what he learned about coaching and he applied it to mentoring kids. And uh, Tom said there are four th three things that every kid needs, and I've added a four, and that's in your notes. These are four things I think you ought to write down because 
these are key to transformational relationships with people. He said the uh, first thing you need is vision. That uh, when you sit with someone, that you need to bring vision to that meeting because the person you're sitting with, they don't have a vision for their life. They don't see what their life could become. And he said, you know, that's so true of football players. You know, he, he sees a football player come and it's like all they, need, all they know is to play football, right? But as a coach, he wanted to see them be successful in all of life. John Wooten was one of Tom Osborne's mentors, and John Wooten really impacted Tom in saying, you got to have a vision for the whole life of someone, an athlete, not just how they're playing for you, but their whole life. And uh, so that's one of the things that uh, Tom brought and, and felt like was a need for young high school, middle school kids is an adult that would have vision for them. And I think in our context of reaching collisions and what you and I need, we need someone that has vision for us. That we, when we sit down with someone, they, they, that somehow in the time we spend together, there needs to be vision. A second thing he talked about was unconditional care. That uh, that's something that people need. It's something you and I need. And then affirmation in terms of their strengths. Find out, help someone find out what they're really good at. What are their strengths? And then the fourth thing that Tom would say, he, this is not a part of his teammates program, it's not a Christian program, but it's part of his life and his personal philosophy is that every person needs a relationship with God. And so when I look at these four things, and I look at Isaiah 58, where it says, if you pour yourself out for people, if you bring vision and unconditional care and affirmation and help someone have a relationship with God, if that's what you're all about, then, then what happens? And it's printed on your page uh, how Isaiah kind of gave four snapshots of what it would look like, you know, he used the light and dark analogy. Then your light will rise in the darkness. Your gloom will become like midday. And you know, I found that to be really true. That uh, as you give yourself to other people, there's a light and a gloom that goes away in your life. Uh, you might have heard it said, you know, when you feel down or depressed, find something and do something for someone else. And, you know, psychologists would tell you that. Well, Isaiah knew that a long, long time before the psychologists figured it out. The great energy comes to us as we give ourselves to other people. He used a shepherd analogy. The Lord will continually guide you, will satisfy your job, give strength to your bones. That, that as we pour ourselves with others out to others, then the good shepherd begins to minister to us in amazing ways. He gave an agricultural analogy. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And then he gives a building analogy. You'll rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up the age-old foundations, be the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets. And it's kind of like, wow. You get all of these benefits from this one thing, if you choose to do it, if you choose to invest in other people, if you choose to spend time with people to bring vision and bring unconditional love and affirmation and bring them to this deeper relationship with God, then God will do all these things in your life. So people ask me, Brett, how could you possibly spend 41 years in the Nebraska Union drinking coffee and talking to college students? Why do you do that? And the answer is, I'm selfish. I do it for me. Because if you make those choices to invest in people, what God will do in your life to give you hope and life and connection to him is amazing. And so it's really a selfish choice. I'm truly a Christian hedonist. 
that I'm just doing it because of the kick that I get out of it from Christ, that, that this is what he's led me to do. And the people that I know, whether they are full-time on campus or they're uh, running some kind of business or working somewhere, the ones who make the choice to say, you know, I'm going to take my time and I'm going to invest in people, those are the folks that have joy. Those are the folks who have real life, that they're making a choice for not just themselves, but for other people. So this first talk, what I'm supposed to tell you about is my story, and I, I, I can't tell it chronologically. So I've got to tell it in a different kind of way, and I'm going to tell you my story by telling you about people who have impacted me, people who have sat across from me and have poured into me. I want to give you some pictures of that, tell you the stories of people who took an interest in me, treated me as valuable, believed in me, corrected me. So here we go. I was born April 18, 1947, in Oklahoma City at 1.55 p.m. This is my mom and dad, uh, Charles and Clemmy. Uh, my dad had an eighth grade education and my mom graduated from high school. They spent their lives in the grocery business. No one in our family until me had graduated from college. It's kind of like Strap and I kind of have some similar backgrounds. Our folks really were common, ordinary laborers. This picture was taken my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. Uh, they had a stable marriage because of Jesus. My father was an alcoholic. Uh, before he found Jesus. I have very little memory of him being drunk. My brother, who's nine years older than me, has great memories of that. And uh, so, yeah, they, they were Christians. I remember seeing my father baptized. And I remember being raised in this home where uh, my mom and dad were trying to corral their boys to be Christians. This next picture is a picture of my brother, Bill. Nine years, I'm on the right, cute little guy. Uh, and people, the one question I've been asked all my life, my brother too, is like, what are you? And it's like, what am I? Well, you guess. I've had people guess you're Eskimo, I'm Jewish, I'm Arab, I'm Chinese. I went to a China, when, when China first started sending students to U.S., the chancellor invited me to go to a Christmas party for all the Chinese students. And so I'm there at, at this Christmas party with some other faculty folks. And this uh, guy from, my, my name, Jan, you know, comes up to me and he says, are you Chinese? <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you look different when Chinese people think you're Chinese. And Eskimos think you're Eskimo. And Arabs think you're Arab. And Jews think you're Jews. And when I was a summer missionary, I was walking down the road with this, this little African-American kid. And I had a, a missions partner who was totally a lily-white Texan, and we're walking down, and this uh, little guy says to my partner, says, are you white? And my partner says, yes, I am. And then he says, Brett, are you white? And I said, yes, I am. He said, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to tell you, we don't know what we are. <laughs> we are just a mix that God created, and I guess I have one of those faces that fits in most any culture. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Some people aren't. I had a guy uh, come up to me. We were doing a mission orientation. He came up to me before he left. He said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. So it was a cold, windy night. We went behind this building in the dark, and he said, I need to ask your forgiveness for something. And I said, okay. I, I didn't know this kid, a K-State kid. He said, uh, I need to ask you to forgive me. I didn't like you. I didn't like your looks from the time I first saw of you. <laughs> Will you forgive me? <laughs> yes. And I thought later I should have said yes. I forgive you for envy and jealousy. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> anyway, we don't know what we are, but I was born, I came into the world as something <laughs> on April the 18th, 1947 at 1.55 p.m. That same day at 11.14 a.m., April 18th, 1957, 15 miles away in Norman, Oklahoma, Mary Lynn Guest was born. 47, and she's sitting right over here. I married an older woman. <laughs> and here's her picture. Yeah, I married this beautiful woman, and we've been married 44 years. Uh, we will be married 44 years come March 27th, and uh, we celebrated that by going to Disneyland this earlier this week and those people my mom and dad my brother the family my wife Mary her family have had a incredible impact on my life they've influenced me and for all of us the bad news is that every one of our families are dysfunctional right yeah, John talked about his dysfunctional family I had a dysfunctional family alcoholism in my family um, yeah there's a dark side to our story and somehow when you come to Christ that he begins to work with that family side of things and and you begin to see how God begins to restore parts of your heart and soul that were damaged in your family part of my damage that I don't have to go in, time to go into, would be happy to talk to anybody here that would want to talk about it. But in, in that growing up period of time in my family, I was sexually abused. And my uh, brother, older brother who's supposed to take care of you, knew about it going on, but he, knew, he did nothing about it. So I had betrayal early in my life. And I wish I'd had someone when I was your age to talk to about it, because I didn't really get to talk about that till I was 40 years old. And it was a, a terrible time of keeping secrets and thinking kids will be kids and just putting it in that category, not knowing that it was just the work of the evil one trying to destroy me. So if that rings the bell in anybody's life. You know, I first I want to say I'm so sorry that something like that happened to you. And the second thing I'd say is I would love to talk with you about it if you need to talk to someone about it. So my family's been a great blessing and has been dysfunctional. But I'm at a stage of life where there is something really joyful happening in my family, and that is with I, we have two daughters, and between those two daughters, they have five children. I want to show you a few pictures. Uh, that is my son-in-law, Brent, my daughter, Jenny, and Chloe and Phoebe uh, there. And then these are my, my daughter, Laura, and her daughter, Whitney, who's 16, driving, driver's license. Zach is going to be 14, and Hillary will be 12. My daughter, Laura, lost her marriage this past year. Her husband, mentally ill. He grew up in our ministry, and it's broken our hearts. Still is. Uh, not a day goes by that we don't have sorrow. And here we are together. Now, that, isn't that something? That is just, to me... It's joyful and to you, in spite of the Nebraska stuff everywhere. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I mean, family influences you. And God has a, you know, God has a family out there for you in your future. And uh, Tim and Amy are expecting this family to come. And in most everyone's life, you know, this is our joyful future that God would use us. So I, I want to tell you just a few stories of people. First, someone who took an interest in me, and I could put so many names up here, I had to be selective. But the one I put was 
a guy named Bobby Green. That's not him. Uh, I picked that because he, he was a quarterback for Oklahoma State football when they were still Oklahoma A&M, the Aggies. And Bobby became my youth director at my church when I was 13 years old. And his claim to fame was he did run a pump back in, against OU in 1960 and scored the only points the Aggies scored, 42 to 7, in 1953. <laughs> and I remember the game. I think I was there in the, in the knot hole section. I was really mad because we wanted a shutout against Oklahoma State, and he ran a pump back for so many yards. But I met him when I was 13, and man, because of the sexual abuse that had gone on in my life, uh, I was, uh, and I hadn't told anybody what had gone on, I was very uh, frail in my heart. I had I, found refuge in Christ. I was like seven years old when the sexual abuse began, and uh, I had found um, refuge in Christ. Church was a safe place for me. And so I liked going to church. In fact, every time the doors were open, I would be there because it was a safe place. Well, Bobby came as youth director and he was an adult, a single man who was an athlete who I had as a role model and he took an interest in me. He gave me a ride everywhere we went. He listened to me. He coached me in life. He was safe. I was attached to him. I remember one time we were in the church basement doing something, and he said, uh, Brett, have you ever thought about memorizing scripture? And the answer was no. I hadn't thought of that. And he said, well, I have this this thing I'm doing, the topical memory system that I'm memorizing through, and it's 105 verses to memorize. Would you like to memorize those with me? I was 13 years old, and I said, no. <laughs> However, when I was 19, that's when I memorized those 105 verses. And when someone presented that to me, I thought, oh, yeah, I've heard about this. I've heard about this. But, um, yeah, so here's the deal. With each of these things, I have a little principle of life that I've written down uh, that I think is true. You may never know the impact your life has on others, and they may not know until later. I've never been able to thank Bobby Green because I didn't know the impact he had on me till I got till later. And I've lost touch with him. I've Googled him. I've Facebooked him. He's probably with the Lord. But he had a great impact on me because he took an interest. And uh, you might not know until later. That what we're doing when we take an interest in people is we're sowing seeds in people's lives. And we, we got to sow broadly. And I loved what, Strap, you were talking about yesterday, the, the taking an interest in people. You just don't know how powerful that might be. Um, and we, I just like to see myself as a link. You know, I don't control the whole chain of events. But I can sure be a link of God's light in someone's life for a moment that I'm there. And hopefully those links will come together to where they find Christ. Sowing seeds. And I do believe that as you take interest in people and sow seeds of life and goodness and love in their lives, that it's going to have a great impact. Um, so Bobby Green took an interest in me. Someone who treated me as valuable was a guy named Leroy Imes. And he wrote this book. The Lost Art of Disciple-Making. Leroy was a, an old navigator who knew Dawson Trotman. And uh, I heard Leroy at a conference and 
went up and talked with him and started asking him questions and he was open to me asking him questions and when I would ask a question you know he would get right in my grid and he would answer the question and he did it with with kindness and clarity but uh, he would then ask me questions and it's like oh he's asking me questions and uh then he remembered me. I would be at a, I, I met him at a conference in Oklahoma, and then when we lived in Florida, I was at a, a meeting in uh, North Carolina. I took some students to, and Leroy Himes remembered me. And it's like, really? And and he he thought, wow. And then he came to Lincoln to work with the Navigators, and he knew I was there, and he called me on the phone. And he said, hey, I'm in town. Would you like to have breakfast? And it's like, oh my gosh, I get to have breakfast with the Leroy Imes. <laughs> and I would go and have breakfast, and he initiated time with me. And he said, I'm, I'm going to be back in Lincoln in such and such a time. I, would you like to do a Bible study on something? Like, And he gave me a, a thing to do a Bible study on. And he came back to Lincoln. We got together and we talked about it. And, and he had this way of just opening his life to me. He treated me as though I was valuable. And uh, here's the principle I got from that. When you go out of your way to spend time with people and value them, it is transformational. It is transformational. People just don't do that. They just don't go out of their way to initiate and treat people as valuable. But when they do, it's transformational. You see, the enemy's strategy is to devalue us, to call us worthless, useless, and hopeless. But the gospel, the way when we interact with people, we treat them as valuable. It says you're of worth. You're not without hope. And... Uh, Man, to initiate and treat people as valuable. And I think when I, I'm hearing Larry's story that he graciously put on video and sent here, this is very surprise. Larry's life as a blind person is he has been treated as unvaluable his whole life. And for whatever reason, I treated him as valuable. I didn't do anything other than just valued him. It's, it was certainly not a heroic thing. But I valued him. And you know, when you value people around you, it is transformational. You, you uh, treat them like they matter. So someone else who impacted my life believed in me. And this, is, if you know much about me, you wouldn't come surprised. It's the tall, skinny guy, Max Barnett. He had black hair at one time. <laughs> His teeth still had a huge separation between them, <laughs> even when he was young. Uh, the man standing next to him was the pastor of the church that I grew up, Preacher Halleck, and that's Mary and I, the lovebirds there, kneeling to be married on that Thursday night. But Max Barnett believed in me. Uh, I was a sophomore when he came to OU, and... Uh, I didn't, I didn't know much about walking with God. In fact, I was a philosophy major, and I was getting ready to give up on the whole thing when God dropped Max into my life and into our lives. And he talked and lived as though Jesus Christ was real and alive. I remember the first time I got into VW, bug with him to drive to campus, he started praying out loud. It freaked me out. You know, I'm like, okay, his eyes are open. All right. I've never seen anyone pray with their dry, eyes open and drive. And he was talking to Jesus as though Jesus really existed and was resurrected and that Jesus was somehow involved in what was going on here. And I mean, up to this point, Jesus was just kind of a poster to me. There was not a real live thing going on. And uh, yeah, Max prayed for me. 
Uh, he believed in me. Um, I, I think I need to, I could tell you so many stories. You know, it's kind of like you put Strap and I up here, we're dangerous when we get off track, right? We start telling stories. But I think I have time to tell you this one. Um, we were out at this place called Lake Eufaula. I'd been in Nebraska for probably five years, six years. And we were there with, with other guys that had started ministries. We were kind of vacationing together, and we were doing a little seminary course together. And uh, I had gotten crosswise with someone that was in the group and had, uh, was really mad about it. And one of my issues was rage. Growing, you know, and Mary could give great testimony on my rage. And the rage was there because of the abuse that I'd experienced. I hadn't dealt with the abuse. And so rage was just below the surface. And, and so, you know, this guy had done something that I thought was unethical. I was really mad about it. I was rageful. And Max and I had gone out jogging, and we finished jogging, and Max said, Brett, there's something I want to talk to you about. It's like, okay. I want to talk to you about your attitude toward this person who had, I felt, been unethical. And uh, I'll tell you, it set me off. I, um, Max said, I think we're dealing with pride here. I think that's what we're dealing with. And I uh, said, you are talking to me about pride? Well, let me tell you what pride looks like. And I started throwing stuff at Max, just stuff I'd seen, stuff he had said, this and that and the other. And I was just accusing him of pride, and, and he just kind of stood there and took it. And then I just said, and so I want to tell you, Max Barnett, I am done with you. You know, if there's any pride in my life, which there's not, <laughs> if there's any at all, it's because of you and your example. You know, what you're seeing is you, not me. And I, I went back to the room and walked in, and uh, Mary, I said to Mary, pack up, we're leaving. She said, what? I took off my shoe and threw it against the wall. I said, pack up, we're leaving. Okay, so she packs up, and we go load ourselves and our children in the car, and we start driving north. And Mary's going... Mm, what happened? <laughs> and she knew that, you know, when I was in this rageful state that she would steer clear, you know. And uh, so we got about an hour north of there, and I'm going, I have just blown my life. And I told her I'd towed Max off in rage and anger, and that it was over. And that as we, as we left that place, we looked down, the, the, everyone was swimming in the lake, and they were all waving goodbye to us. <laughs> and I just couldn't get this image out of my mind. <laughs> well, the further north we go, go, we're out in the plains, and this thunderstorm comes up. And I mean, we get in this motel, and it's like <laughs> a tornado is going to come. I felt like going out of the motel and going, come on over here, <laughs> hit here. <laughs> And we got back to Nebraska, and I, uh, I'm like, oh, what have I done? What have I done? Well, I didn't call him to ask forgiveness. I didn't know what to do. I was hopeless. And we went to a conference in August in uh, New Mexico, and it had probably been six or eight weeks after this incident. And I was just dreading going to this conference because I knew that Max was going to be there, and I, I didn't know what to do. So I, we arrived there in the middle of the night, got up the next morning to go to lunch, walking across the 
parking lot. Who's the first person I would see? There's Max. Hey, how are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> so, you want to eat lunch together? Sure. <laughs> so we go and we eat lunch. I mean, I'm hardly able to swallow. <laughs> and so it's like, okay. So we're done with lunch and we're walking back and I, I say, Max, can I talk to you? Sure, let's go to my room. And so we go to his room. And it's kind of like in those movies. It's like everything is slow motion. The door opens. Creak. <laughs> I sit on the bed. And Max slowly shuts the door. Like, oh my gosh. And I said, Max, I, I want to talk to you about what happened at Lake Ufala. And he said, I'm so glad you want to talk about that. It's like, oh, no. I said, okay, Max, you, I, I, what you got from me is what I am. It's, you know, the only other people that have seen that in me have been my mother and my wife and a few other people, and I can offer no excuse. I cannot promise you that it will not happen again. I can say I'm so sorry that I dumped on you, and I will you forgive me? And he said, I understand. I forgive you, and as far as I'm concerned, we never need to talk about this again. Wow, he believed in me, even though he knew, he knew what he was getting from me. You see, believing in someone is more than you can do it. It's so much more than that. Believing in someone is helping them develop character and vision and skills to glorify God. So, uh, yeah, someone else that has influenced me, they corrected me. This man named Gene War, you might have heard of him. He's with the Lord now. But he inspired me. He, he was a very wealthy man. He gave us tons of money to lead the ministry, do the ministry. And... Uh, he came to Florida when Mary and I lived there. We'd been married for maybe a year and a half. And he came to Florida and brought some couples with him to do a little seminar in the church we were in. And uh, after the seminar, he took us to Nassau, Bahamas on his dollar. You know, it's like, woo, we get to go to the Bahamas. So we landed in Nassau and we checked in this hotel. And he said, we were walking down the road and he said, uh, would you and Mary like to eat dinner with Irma and me? It's like, yes. You know, so we, we sat down at dinner and what do you want to eat? And he said, I think this is a good place for prime rib. Well, I had never eaten prime rib in my life. I didn't even know what it was. Okay, I was from Oklahoma. I knew what hamburgers and hot dogs were, but prime rib we didn't know. And so I said, sure. So we ordered prime rib, and then he pulls this notebook out of his pocket, and he says, I've been talking to people at your church, and there's some things I want to talk to you about. And he went down a list of 10 things that, that he had learned were, we were not doing well. And then he got to the bottom one, and it had to do with Mary and I always being 100% doing ministry and never any time for ourselves. We didn't have a date night. We didn't do anything together. We were just ministering machines. And he said, uh, you know, I wouldn't give, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet that five years from now you're going to be married. He said, I've been around the block a while and I can just tell you, this has the seeds of destruction all over it if you don't do something about it. And uh, 
Mary and I were shocked. We went back to the motel room and, and we both just simultaneously fell on the bed, just started crying, holding each other crying. We don't want this to happen to us, you know. And uh, wow, Gene corrected us. And, and here's what I've, I've learned, that love is about truth and grace. And speaking the truth in love is grace. It's a gift. If you find someone that speaks the truth and love to you, they are giving you a great gift. And repentance only comes when we see things as they really are, when there's truth. When someone holds up a mirror to us and says, here's what I see. Here's what's going on. And when we're courageous enough to look at that and then to change as a result of that, that's an incredible gift when someone would correct you. And I was thinking this morning as I was thinking about this talk of the line from the movie A Few Good Men that Jack Nicholson uh, delivered, you can't handle the truth. And uh, I hope as a follower of Christ you can. I hope you'll be open enough to say, yeah, I don't like what you're telling me, but I do have to say it is the truth. And, uh, man, people that will tell you the truth, what a, what a great gift they're giving you. Uh, someone that had vision for me is a guy named Peck Lindsey. He is a Baptist denominational guy. He was over the Baptist thing in Nebraska when we went there. And uh, he's one of the good guys. In church work, you'll find there are good guys and there are bad guys. And let me just say this, the bad guys outnumber the good guys. But Peck is a good guy. And uh, he invited us to come to, to Nebraska. Um, we were about, uh, I'm trying to think, 15, 15 years into the ministry when, it, when I realized, you know, we got to start a different kind of church. The, the kind of church we had was not working for our students. And so I went and talked to Peck about that, and uh, he had a vision for that. He, had, he could see me starting a church. I never thought of myself starting a church. I always thought, I just meet with students. I just work with students. But he, he could see me starting a church. And so we did. And he protected us from all the Baptist wolves who didn't want us to do that. And uh, he had a vision for me. And you, along your life, you're going to need the eyes of others in order to see who you are and what you were made to do. Uh, you really are. You can't see your own face. You know, the best I can do seeing my face is to kind of look cross-eyed at my nose. The tip of my nose is about all I can see on my own face. But other people can see what you can't see. And God will bring people into your life who have a vision for you that will tell you stuff that you just don't see. And uh, you can be that kind of person for others also. Uh, showing me unconditional care. That would be Bob Anderson. Bob and I met when we were freshmen in college 48 years ago. We met on the steps of the uh, BSU building. He looks a little squishy in that picture. <laughs> Peters, we need help with our graphics here. I just don't know how to do this. They compress and get squishy. Um, and I don't know why. Uh, but... I mean, can you imagine meeting someone you, when you were a freshman in college and 48 years later, you're still close to them. You pray for them every day. They pray for you. You know their family. You've gone through life together. Wow. Um, Bob and I have opened our souls to one another since we were freshmen in college. And most of us are afraid to do that because if you open your soul to someone, we're afraid they won't love us if they know the real truth. You know that story I was telling you about Max? Bob was a witness to us leaving, and Bob called me after we got back to Nebraska. 
What in the world happened? Max wouldn't talk about it. Max only said he was very disappointed and to pray for you. It's like, oh, Bob, you don't want to know what I did to Max. So I, I spilled the beans to Bob. I'm so sorry. Have you called Max? No, Bob, and I'm not going to call Max. Why not? I don't want to call Max. I have blown it. It's over. No, it isn't. You need to call Max. I'm not going to call Max. And Bob would call me every week leading up to this conference. Have you called Max? No, I'm not going to call Max. Bob, stop asking me. <laughs> so we, we rode together in the back of this car out to this conference in New Mexico. And Bob, we get in the back seat. We're back in the back seat of the car. Someone else is driving. Bob says, turns to me and says, are you going to talk to Max at this conference? I said, I probably said, hell no. <laughs> I said, I said, no, I'm not. I don't want to talk about it. It's all over. It's done. Don't talk to me about it again. So Bob didn't say anything. So we're driving. It's an all-night drive. And in Guyman, Oklahoma, the panhandle, it's nowhere in the world. There is a huge thunderstorm and hail is coming, and it's, it reminded me of that thunderstorm that I was telling you about. I was going, please come and take me. It happened again, and we're driving, and in the middle of this thunderstorm, Bob says, turns to me, and he says, Brett, I think you really need to talk to me. <laughs> okay. I'll talk to him, but I don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, here's, here's the principle. You need someone who knows you fully and still loves you no matter what. And Bob has been one of those in my life. And then the last thing, and we'll be done here. Someone that's, someone that's influenced me has affirmed my strengths is a man named Dennis Wood. He was a pastor in Lincoln for seven years. Uh, the first few years did not go well because we were competing with one another. We both had strong personalities, and we were like in competition. But through the first part of those seven years, we reached a point of confession and breaking brokenness to where we could complement each other. And this is during the time that we were learning about spiritual gifts. And we learned what one another's gifts were. And Dennis affirmed me in my gifts of exhortation, not extortion, exhortation, <laughs> which means encouraging people. That's one of my giftedness is of encouraging people one-on-one. -on -one. And he would send people to me for me to encourage. And he, he saw me as valuable and he affirmed my strengths. Uh, he's, still, he's still living. He's got liver cancer. He lives in uh, Tempe, Arizona. And he affirmed my strengths. We need strong people who identify as strength because they are great motivators. Great motivators. Praise is a wonderful motivator. And uh, Dennis is someone who always saw good and strengthened me. I think we're going to lose him. So here's something for you to think about. Everyone here has a story. God has brought around your life already, even though you're young, he's brought people around you who've taken an interest in you, who've treated you as valuable, who've believed in you, who've corrected you, who've had a vision for you, who've showed you unconditional care, and who's affirmed you. And I would encourage you to think about your story and to put a face to each of one of those categories. And maybe as you that, you're going to say thank you to that person.
Maybe you're going to write him a note. Maybe you're going to get a postcard down at the shop and say, I'm at this conference, and I just wanted to thank you for influencing me in this way. Wouldn't that be cool? If you bought postcards from here and you said, I got to write you a thank you note. Maybe that person is here. And maybe you just need to pull them aside and say, you know, you are someone who's been that role in my life. Because, you see, that's how people change. It's through God bringing people of influence around us who somehow are able to breathe something into us that we could never get on our own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, cast of people, just the few that I put up here in my life. Uh, God, some of them are dead and with you, and I can't say thank you to them. But I can say, God, thank you to you. Because you are the creator, the designer. You're the one that arranges things. You, you arranged Mary and I to meet when we were juniors in high school. You arranged these people who dropped into my life. I had no clue when I met these people how you would use them to transform me from being a rageful uh, person who was selfish to someone who worships Jesus and says, Lord, use me for your good and for your glory. Uh, help us, Lord, to remember the people who've influenced us. In Jesus' name, amen.